This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelly. Our guest this week is Canada's Minister of Agriculture, Jerry Ritz. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS Inc. is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. CHS is diversified in energy, grains, and foods, and committed to growing their business through domestic and global operations. More with Canada's Minister of Agriculture, Jerry Ritz, next here on Open Mic. What does it mean to be relevant in today's global agriculture marketplace? To CHS, it means having the people and facilities in place to deliver U.S. grain to a feedlot in South Korea or investing in energy production and distribution to help ensure dependable fuel supplies for our local communities. In fact, we've invested more than $1.4 billion on our owner's behalf to make sure we stay relevant now and end of the future. To learn more, visit chsinc.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Canadian Agriculture Minister Jerry Ritz has a farmer's first attitude in serving his country. Minister Ritz says the U.S. has exhausted the WTO appeals process with its mandatory country of origin labeling laws that have wreaked havoc on their farmers and the Canadian livestock industry. Well, the livestock industry in Canada is a major part of the global number that we have when it comes to trade. It's also a major um, benefactor of jobs. Uh, the food manufacturing sector in Canada is actually the largest manufacturing sector, you know, surpassing auto and, and a number of other things. So, you know, it's a very valuable part of uh, of our overall farming strategy. Uh, you know, grains and oil seeds, of course, play the biggest role, but uh, livestock is right up there as well. In terms of dollars and cents, where does it stand? Well, it's about an $8 billion industry uh, when it comes to the Canadian content. I mean, that may sound small in uh, American numbers, but uh, for us, it's a very significant part. We export somewhere in the neighborhood of $60 billion of product a year, and, uh, of course, the livestock sector is, is a big chunk of that. Country of origin and labeling. What effect has it had on your industry? Well, it's had a very very much a dampening effect, Jeff, over the years that uh, we've been working on this. It's almost a decade now, really. Um, the, the problem being one of the North American industry is very much integrated. Uh, as Canadians, we rely about 70% on your processing capacity when it comes to the red meat sector. Uh, you know, you buy a lot of our calves, take them down there, fatten them up, and then, and then finish them off and so on. We also get a lot of, about a million animals heading north every year to take advantage of barley feedouts and, and so forth. So the integration of that market is, is very well known, is very strong. And when you have wrong-headed policies, uh, and, and the political gestures that, that are rooted in things like country mandatory country origin labeling, they create a, a segregation and discrimination, a price discrimination on Canadian product. We've we felt the sting of that uh, to the tune of a little bit north of three billion dollars a year now since the so-called fix went in and uh, addressing the amendment uh, that uh, was asked for from the U.S. It actually got worse, not better. So, you know, we have a situation where Tyson Foods was our third largest buyer, uh, stopped bidding on, on Canadian content completely. So, you know, you take a major buyer out of our marketplace, it makes a big difference when it, what, on what everybody else pays. Uh, we haven't sat idly by in this. Of course, we've been working with the WTO. Your own industry has taken your own government to court. Uh, we have used this time to start to press and open markets and expand markets in Japan, Korea, China, especially where we have beef access and you as a country still do not. So, you know, we're taking advantage of this time when we're being 
discriminated it on in the American market and uh, used it to finalize a free trade agreement with, with Europe, which is going to see a significant amount of, of red meat products move that direction as well. There are those who still support the spirit of the labeling law in the U.S., saying that a consumer mm-hmm. has a right to know. Even other countries of the world have labeling laws. How is this one outside of the bounds of those that are accepted? I think first and foremost, the simplest answer to that is the mandatory nature of this. We have a voluntary product of Canada code here that we that we put in, and if someone uh, wants to use that to address a niche market and consumers are, are wanting of that and will pay a little more for the costs involved in that, great. It's not a lot of, uh, different than an organic label, you know, those types of things. There's always someone who will, uh, you know, find a market niche and, and address it a certain way. And by, by having product of Canada available, um, I mean, you can have country of origin labeling, but you can't do it in a mandatory way that, that segregates and discriminates. You know, there's a lot of talk around a NAFTA label. Uh, you know, Senator Stabenow was floating this at one point, but in her mind, that label applied after processing. Well, that doesn't help. The segregation and discrimination goes on all through the plant. You have to have a label like that as a goes into the plant in order to to make it work. So, you know, there's there's a number of things that have been wrong about cool. I guess the thing from our standpoint is the Americans wrote it all the way to the bottom. The administration decided to make full use of the WTO process. That's their right. But, uh, you know, the, the fourth down is over. And there are no more options. I, I did see a newspaper article today with people that are still in favor of this, citing the fact that we should let the full process play out. Well, you have. You're done. It's over. There's no more. You're out of options and out of time. So, you know, they also negate the fact that the U.S. chief economist in a study has pointed out that it costs your own industry and consumers some $2.6 billion a year, uh, which, of course, nobody wants to pay extra for their groceries. Now, what process will your country go through in beginning the retaliatory phase of this process? We've begun that process. Uh, We've asked the WTO for an assessment meeting. What they'll do is look at the number that we've come forward with, just a little bit north of $3 billion annually. Uh, The Mexican number is somewhere in the neighborhood of $650 million. So we're looking at about a $4 billion uh, tariff number that we're looking at. That's not the number we'll apply tariffs on. That's the amount, that's the value that the tariff will, will generate. So when you put 100% tariff on products like California wines and, you know, other aspects of uh, beef and pork coming north and, and uh, south into Mexico, uh, it makes quite a difference, uh, on, on their, on their, uh, availability of consumers. So, you know, the, the, your own industry is, is starting to rally around the fact that we need to, don't need to get to this point. We are each other's major trading partners. Uh, this is more than a fly in the ointment. This is a wrench in the gears that needs to be addressed for us to take other trade uh, notions seriously as well. You've already given a list of 38 different items. Is that list set in stone or will it vary? And what uh, would you choose all 38 or segments of those as as the implementation phase would come in? Well, we've kept all of our options open. We've, we've uh, you know, adjudicated and listed 38 items, uh, basically uh, looking at states that were sitting on the fence or were hardcore in favor of cool. Uh, just to help them make those tough decisions to show them, like California, uh, you know, $500 million worth of California wine comes north into Canada. You put a 100% tariff on along with the 20 cents difference in the dollar right now, and pretty soon you're losing shelf space, and it's really hard to get that back as, as customers, you know, uh, palettes change and, and designs and desires for different products change. So the, the 38 uh, list was a guideline. It's not static. It's a, it's a living document. We can add to it, subtract to it. We can pick certain items. We can put a tariff on for six months and then lift 
post it. There's all sorts of things that we can do. Uh, there are many different tools in that toolkit that we intend to tend to make use of should it get to that point. We're hopeful not. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, the integrated market does wetter, better when governments aren't interfering in it. But uh, certainly, these are tools in our kit that we will uh, we will put in play. Secretary Vilsack said earlier this year, obviously, it's not something that regu- through regulation that can be afforded. It must be addressed by the Congress. In the Congress, two schools of thought. One is a full and complete repeal. The right. other is still trying to maintain the spirit of the law with another amendment process. How do you see their their proposals? Well, I don't think there's any way to amend it or wordsmith it that would be acceptable to either Canada or Mexico, and we are the final adjudicators of what they put forward. Uh, we're we're in the camp of full repeal. That's really the only answer. That uh, you know, we're not as a country or Mexico as a country going to sit around and wait for another shoe to fall. Uh, sometime further down the road, we want to see full repeal. Sometime our Congress is more deadline oriented, and I think that's probably not just uh, isolated to the U.S. But well, that's the, politics. But the the question then would be, knowing that the retaliatory uh, phase could begin late summer or early fall, is there a particular date that you have in mind that the Congress should be completely done and the president's signature on the document, or that the process would be in place that would limit the threat of retaliation? Well, I'm not interested in the, the start of the midterm of a process. I'm interested in the end date, as you rightly point out. And for me, that's uh, July before you rise for the August break. You know, we're going to have to see some some fairly significant movement at that point because at the same time, the you know, the uh, crossover lines of, of your House reconvening uh, early September and us having the ability of, to put tariffs on are going to collide. And, you know, uh, to have this locked and loaded and done by the end of July would be would be the best. Let's broaden our focus, if we could, to global trade. And again, the focus comes back to Washington. Uh, trade Promotion Authority is a decision that is before the Congress for the White House. Uh, do our Canadian friends watch what happens in Washington, and is that vote important to you? Oh, absolutely. It's very important to us. I mean, as we get down to the final uh, percentages and tariffs and, and lack of tariffs and so on that are that are being discussed for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it's very important for the Americans to be able to follow through. And again, as my good friend Mike Conaway said, there's no way that any country is going to deal with the U.S. Uh, in good faith, knowing there could be 535 amendments to a piece of legislation coming before Congress. So, you know, it, it's very important for us to know that the Americans have the ability to sign on the dotted line without it taking a lot of time to put into play, making sure that it's not going to be torn apart or politicized at the end of the day. What role does the Japanese involvement in this Trans-Pacific Partnership, what does it play for Canada? Well, I think it makes it all worthwhile. Uh, you know, as a country, we're going to have to have a balanced approach going forward. We're going to have to put a little water in our wine, as is everybody, and we all expect to do that. But uh, we need to know, um, you know, how much water that everyone is expecting. And we're not going to deal by- blindly. We're not going to buy a deal uh, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, we'll negotiate in good faith. We're strong negotiators. We've proven that with a Canada-European free trade agreement. Uh, you know, we, we very much look forward to it. We are a trading nation. We export, uh, on average, 50% of what we produce when it comes to agricultural goods, some as high as 85 and 90% when we talk about our oilseed production. So, you know, it's very important to us to have trade corridors. We also look at the strengthening of the North American platform in issues like this. You know, if we're ever to have the ability to push back on, say, the, you know, the growing Chinese economy, the Indian economy, Brazilian economy, these developing nations that get that title in perpetuity, 
we're going to have to have a strong North American platform and, uh, you know, feeding into these uh, global supply chains. A sticking point in the U.S. Congress has been that of currency manipulation. Is that a concern? And is is there a place for currency manipulation inside trade agreements such as these? Uh, it would be a tough one to insert now at the 11th hour, I think. Um, certainly, you know, I don't think any country is going to allow someone else to oversee their, uh, you know, their, their whole banking system and, and how they operate uh, their monetary policy. At the end of the day, I guess we'd have to see what the wording is. If, if it's just to placate some Democrats to say, okay, we can go ahead with this because it's, it's, it's at least uh, itemized, um, no harm, no foul. But, uh, I mean, if it gets down to... Uh, uh, hard line. Uh, I don't think anybody would 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 tolerate that, in, including the Americans. In testimony before a subcommittee hearing in Washington a few days ago, it was brought up and highlighted that China, India, and other developing nations have been growing the amount of dollars that they spend to support their agriculture much more than that of the U.S. or that of Canada. Is it a concern? Well, I, I, you know, my concern, I guess, goes further than that. I, I spent some time at the WTO discussions a number of years ago when I first became minister, and my, my biggest concern, and I voiced it at the time, and you know, almost got booed out of the room, was how can a developing nation whose economy surpasses mine? be considered developing in perpetuity. I think there's got to be a tipping point where all of a sudden you get to that point, you, you can't hide behind that wall anymore. Uh, you know, there's not, it's not just tariffs that we seek to lift when it comes to trade. It's all the non-tariff trade barriers that get thrown in the way. And, you know, there's a whole list of those that uh, developing countries can hide behind. Certainly, I understand the, the nature of, of building your own capacity. But, you know, we all as countries have done that. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there has to be a level playing field. Mr. Ritz, we want to thank you so much for spending time with us here on Open Mic. And the U.S. audience is yours, sir. Oh, well, thank you, Jeff. It's been great chatting with you. You know, there's a number of issues that we continue to work extremely well together. Uh, regulatory cooperation back and forth between Canada and the U.S. Uh, Tom Vilsack and I have a great working relationship on that. We've had good discussions, good frank discussions around uh, issues like low-level presence and uh, maximum residue level. You know, as we export around the world, we all use the same containers, the same trains, the same boats, and, and so on. And, you know, these little issues are going to pop up from time to time, and uh, some countries will use those as a, as a non-tariff trade barrier. So we have to come to global recognition that zero is no longer zero. With the efficacy of testing, there's so much more that can be found. If you're looking for it, you're going to find it. So we've got to come up with a number, that a uh, percentage that is still allowable uh, as we move forward and, and build our trade. Our thanks to this week's guest, Canada's Minister of Agriculture, Jerry Ritz. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc., a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States, diversified in energy, grains, and foods, and committed to growing their business through domestic and global operations. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.